Welcome back to the Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is Ed Tucker, co-founder of Human Firewall and former European CISO of the Year, also hilarious uh, security professional on Twitter. Yes, I could not stop laughing the entire time we're talking with him. Yeah. Um, so it's, we talk about a range of things. We talk about the need for collaborative security, how security can get out of the ivory tower and really affect some big things through digital transformation. Um, and among other things, the realistic uh, fear of hackable sex robots. So on that note, let's get into it with Ed Tucker. Hello, sir. Hello, Ed. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. Not too bad. How are you? All right. Um, so you have me, George, and my compatriot, Ashley Stone, on the line. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Great. All right. So, Ashley, why don't you kick it off? Great. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional journey and how you got to where you are today? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Um, so... I don't know whether I took a traditional route into security or not, because I suppose security, other than kind of physical security, guards, doormen, police, that kind of side, didn't really exist um, when I left school. So I had two choices. I had uh, university, um, which with the grades I got wasn't really an option, uh, or just go, go and find a job in the workplace. Um, so I actually started out uh, down the route to accountancy. Um, so numbers is something that generally had made sense to me. Um, maths was always a subject I was, I was pretty good at, although I rarely pushed myself. So, you know, I didn't really push it too far. Right. Um, so, so my entry route, uh, was basically doing simple accounts work, uh, which was an entry route into the office space, which probably the biggest value in that was the fact I went from, uh, uh, organizations or environments where my peer group was essentially my own age uh, uh up to maybe six years ahead of me so not a huge age gap in that space all kind of you know going through different stages of maturity but still children um, and then authority figures of of, of, of adults you know the teachers uh, mm -hmm. into an environment where uh you know as an 18 year old guy coming out of school there were people in their 60s some in their 70s and everywhere in between um, you know, and, and, and brought me into that, that outside of the comfort bubble that was school and education and into the working life and, you know, the joys of office politics and, and tit for tats and office romances and all sorts that kind of <laughs> blows your mind as an 18 year old. Um, and while I was, while I was doing that, I got to know the IT guys and the IT guys were literally the coolest people in the place purely because they swanned around the place, fixing problems. They were everyone's best friend. Um, and they they were they were a real good bunch of guys, um, and they seemed to have a great life. Uh, and I, I naturally kind of drew to them and, and figured out what they'd done and where they were, and, and it kind of got me a bit of an interest into um, into IT in general. Um, while I was there, also we moved from a classic old VAX system to Windows three point one, and the joys of actually using a mouse and things like that. And um, and being one of the younger people, that actually I was able to cope with that, whereas some of the others weren't quite as able to so I did a bit of help around just helping coaching people and a bit of mentoring of, of some people around just how to use a computer yeah I'm curious um, to, as to how many people of a certain generation kind of lucked into tech simply by virtue of the fact that they were young and they could learn it faster because that was just so much of the 90s was 
I think people just jumping in. I mean, I picked up my first HTML book when I was like uh, in sixth grade. And my parents basically admitted that they paid for me to take computer classes so that I could later (laughs) teach them how to use computers. (laughs) Awesome. I mean, it's true. I mean, technology is something, generally speaking, that happened to people of our age. You know, that that, Mm -hmm. um, we went into, there wasn't a great deal of of tech teaching at school level when I was at school. There was a little bit of basics around a computer, a bit of RAM, a bit of ROM, um, and then a couple of bits on spreadsheets. And that was about as far as you got. Yeah. Uh, And then you go into the workplace and you start to use, you know, what we'd now look at kind of heritage, some some real antique IT systems. And then, you know, we, uh, if you're my age, I'm 43, I'll be 44 this year. I don't look it, I know, I look way older. Um, <laughs> but but I went kind of through the IT journey along with everyone else. So, you know, VAX systems to Windows 3.1 and then through to the joys of things like, you know, 95 Windows XP, you know, the joy that's still around today. Yes, uh, unpatched, amazingly, by the way. You know, yeah, exactly, you know, and all the way to where we are today. And, and, and we've kind of lived through that journey. And there was a certain amount that you almost had to, you had to know a little bit about maybe how it worked to be able to navigate it just to use it on a daily basis. Whereas, you know, a lot of technology you look at today, you know, I've got an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old, and they have no idea how the internet works. They've got no idea how their apps work. They've got no idea how YouTube works because the usability is so simple. Right. It's just like this that, magic screen and you touch things and new worlds is, open. Yeah. You know, they've been, they've been able to use things like, you know, the phone and an iPad from the age of like two, just because the usability is so, so simple. And then you remember things like, you know, VAC systems or Windows 3.1, and you almost needed a degree just to actually boot it and log on, you know. And if it did anything out of the ordinary, you were just stuffed. Yeah, uh, yes. Well, and I think, I think the usability argument, uh, and we'll get to this, is an interesting one because if you just assume that these apps are, you know, these magical fun toys that you put onto your, uh, you know, mobile supercomputer, I think that's what we saw a few weeks ago with the explosion of face app, right? Like everyone just downloaded this thing because their friends did and they had some fun with it. And then the articles came out and said, Oh, by the way, in the terms of use, it says they can't, really secure your data it passes into this third-party cloud you give them permission to do whatever and we're headquartered in st petersburg russia and 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 even then it's you know there's there's two aspects that i find really interesting one of which and it's a little bit like the breaches as well and the headlines is is how quickly did face app go from almost nothing Mm -hmm. to enormous to then almost disappearing again yeah. Yeah. I mean, you it know, was, it, it was like, it, had it, been popular, then it disappeared. And then suddenly 80 then million suddenly, people were using it. Boom. And then gone. And then, and then of course, you know, that little side of it comes out and, and as classic kind of, whether it's infosec or privacy or data protection people, we all run around with our hair on fire. Saying, <laughs> ah! What are you doing? And, yeah. and, and, and completely ignoring that the general populace, a, is ignorant and i don't mean that in a bad way i just mean they don't know and secondly they don't care they just want to use it because it's fun right and and, and we and, and this is a problem we have in the industry in a sense and when we do our day jobs we look at things from such a purist point of view you know from a myopic point of view with our security or privacy or data protection whatever it happens to be our it hat on and we look at that and we never really open that other eye that says that we're also a user mm-hmm you know, and in some ways, my usability or the fact I want to have fun or everyone else is doing it, so why shouldn't I? And we kind of lose that sense of 
of where we should be focusing ourselves, which is actually bringing both things together. Yeah, I think I was talking with Javad Malik, who was also saying, you know, we can get lost in the weeds and people can fight amongst each other about you should containerize this. It's got to be a multi-factor that. And he's like, at the end of the day, you need to remember that if you're protecting like a hospital system or just a communications network, like there are lives at stake. So let's just focus on keeping people safe and stop like the pissing contest over, you know, your yeah. street cred over how you stop one part of a hack or whatever. Yeah, or the the kind of pedantry that we almost the, the infighting and pedantry that we do with each other over the minutia, mm-hmm. and, and, and we we revel when someone in inverted commas gets it wrong, right? Because then we can all poke and then show how how good we are because we know it better. Um, and at the same time, as you say, you know, if you've got a doctor or a nurse in a hospital, they're probably going to have the password pasted to the screen because it saves time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That, yeah. That's re- that's reality. Deal with it. Yeah, and they're you know? probably we, we, using Facebook to, you know, between shifts or on their break to communicate yeah. with their babysitter. Like that's just like, hey, check yeah. this, check that. And that's just the reality of their world. Yeah. Or, or they've, they've got email or whatever and they use WhatsApp because it's quicker. Right. Um, and because they can, they, you know, it's much easier for them to communicate with a person on another ward or in another part of the building or whatever it happens to be because it's easier, it's quicker and they can just do it. No, we've seen this um, repeatedly. We've seen um, our clients. We've seen other people we've talked to where, you know, American HQ freaks out because some team in Brazil or India is using WhatsApp and they're like, that's not a sanctioned uh, software program. We don't have anything to to control that. And we're like, well, I mean, how's that working out for you? <laughs> like, yeah. like the reality is their clients use WhatsApp. And if you want them to make their sales quota, they're going to use whatever tools is required to do that. Yeah. And, and and you can say whether it's a sanctioned, you know, software solution, hardware, it makes no lick of difference. If they're using it, it, it's part of your estate and you've just got to deal with it. Essentially, you've got an unmet user requirement um, and they found a way to do something because either they have to because other clients are using it or it's easier for them um, or there's restrictions in place with the with the systems you provide them, the sanctioned ones, that means they make them hard to do their day job. Right. Um, so and I, you know, yeah, and I, so I want to return to that point that you'd made about, you know, in the early days, you had to know how things worked, and we take for granted things like the internet and apps. So I guess running parallel to that, knowing how things work um, in order to fix them, how have you seen cybersecurity or InfoSec evolve over that same time period um i I suppose in a similar way i I see more certainly from a technological evolution i see more of it now um i i think initially you know there was many of us that kind of came into infosec through different routes different guises you know so Mm -hmm. i went from accountancy to a help desk um supporting first line uh second line third line i was supporting pub managers as well so people who were out there trying to sell beer to punters uh, and supporting, <laughs> support, supporting their till systems and then went through all the ITIL disciplines uh, and went through things like xp migrations and all sorts before landing in security so kind of got a grounding in many other areas but i think um although and especially now there's a lot more security people who are, who are a lot more tech savvy they're a lot more tech focused certainly a lot more code focused mm-hmm. um uh, a lot more focused on new technologies and 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 you know um, whether it's deployment methodologies or, or whatever it happens to be or how the technology works. But still, the one thing that we've yet to really get our heads around and understand how it works is 
the person that we're doing it all for, which is, you know, the customer of security. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, brilliant point. Focused and, 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 and whether it's, you know, that you, you're, you're, uh, an ace coder, you know, cause mm-hmm. we see the post that, that if you don't code, you can't work in cyber, which is the biggest pile of nonsense you'll ever read. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but equally, how what we do on a daily basis, whether it's the technology we implement, whether it's the scripts or automations that we put in, whether it's the policies that we write, the training that we do, how that affects other people within the business, whether it's the ultimate end customer, as in the person working in the business that we're trying to do security on behalf of to help them concentrate on their job and, and make it easier to, for them to do it in a more secure way, or whether it's the fact that we're having a knock-on effect into IT teams, the networks team, the email team, the whoever team, the cloud team. Um, and, and, and we're too focused on on the technology bit in a little sense to the detriment of people and process. I think those yeah, are the bits that I, we really I think fail that, to understand. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the tug of war. Is I you know maybe because things are so easy to use on the infosec side, there is a tendency or a, a preference for getting really nitty gritty in the in the tech because fewer people understand the the workings at the code level but at the same time the other end of that tug of war is very much a psychological or human aspect that's focused on the end user right and there seems to be this constant need to reconcile those two it's like if you had your ideal infosec team you'd have the hard coders but you would also have like a team of psychologists or you know uh some business consultants that are just like that's not how people operate today um, or, or just just being vaguely cognizant that there are people outside of security. <laughs> right. So, 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 so I, I ran cyber security for an organization called HMRC, which is the UK tax authority, mm-hmm. um, and built the cyber capability there. So, you know, ended up with two geographically dispersed SOCs doing all sorts and, and um, engineered it, ran it, fed it, watered it ourselves, did, you know, whether it's um, research and intelligence through to you know the incident management and the incident response stuff, um, the engineering side, also looking at anti-phishing and customer protections and all all the stuff you'd expect. Um, and although we had lots and lots of technology, you know, we didn't spend a fortune because we're government and and you know it's taxpayer money at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Um, my biggest problems were people and process. Yes, by mm-hmm. a country mile. You know the fact that. Um, if I wanted to do an email investigation or my analysts, they would have to engage the exchange team because we weren't, we didn't run exchange because we're security. Right. We might, we might have limited access. If we want to know how many recipients there were, we'd probably have to go to exchange or if we wanted um, them to make a change for us, or we'd have to go to the networks team. If it was say the web gateways or the firewalls or the proxies or whether it was the WAFs or, or we would have to engage other teams, which is a process driven thing. And many of those were suppliers. Yes. Um, and, yeah. And so, it also comes to a people aspect because a lot of that you get through by relationships. You know, they've got a day job to do. They've right. got seven changes to make and you've got something that needs priority. That's a relationship. And also the people between the people that work for me um, and also the people who are there at the front line. You know, the people who receive the email in their inbox, the people who click the link, whether good or bad, the people who send work home. Or actually, you know, you receive a dodgy email at home and you send it into work. You <laughs> security at work better. The people who share passwords, the people who allow other users to log on as them, who sit at their desk and do all these things, the people who ignore the policies because they're not written for them. Um, it's this people and process bit that, that and trouble is, though, you know, I'm now a vendor. I can't sell you people and process. I need to sell you technology. I right. need to sell you widgets. I, I need you to think it's a technological problem when actually it's it's a people and process problem, which is why they come first. Yeah. Well, you've actually you've you've 
led us or we've stumbled into what we wanted to talk about next. And we've avoided uh, successfully business jargon for a full 16 minutes. It might be a record. <laughs> it might be a record. But we are going to say it. We're going to say those words. We're going to say digital <laughs> transformation. That's that's what we want to talk about. Yeah, so we're, awesome. ta- we're talking about the people, and people are going to use the tools that make their lives easier in their day-to-day job. And we've heard you be pretty vocal about digital transformation as it relates to how businesses think about information security. So what do you think? What changes do you think need to happen to the role of information security for businesses to innovate effectively or keep up with their people? Um, so, so there's, there's two aspects, and 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 we can, you know, we can argue over the the um, the boundaries of what digital transformation is and isn't. You know, at the end of the day, it's about it's about the business doing things more effectively, more innovatively, mm-hmm. and doing more for less. You know, greater revenue, greater experience better results at the end of the day however that comes through some form of digital mechanism and, and we can argue what digital means you know does it have a plug on it you know or right. what, you know it, it's almost become a word that's a little bit like cyber it's one of these ephemeral words that's kind of meaningless um the, the two biggest things i see in there um I'll kind of come to a third one because, you know, it's a bit like the Spanish Inquisition. There's always a third one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, the first one is that if you look at digital transformation, it's all about the user, whether that's the end customer or the employee. It's all about that user experience, the user journey. It's all about them. And that's probably the biggest lesson that security can learn from it is mm-hmm. it's all about the person you're trying to do it for, the business you're trying to do it for. It's not security for security. It's security for the business, the employees of the business, and the customers of the business. That's our focus. That's focus number one for security. Brilliant. Um, the second one is um, – most organizations will have some kind of digital transformation program. Again, we can argue over you know the boundaries and what that means in practice. Um, one of the biggest problems we have in security is, is uh, almost the debt that we carry today of having done the basics really badly for years. And, that, and that's mostly because the basics are really hard to do. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's not to say people are rubbish at it. They are hard, which is why generally we're crap at it. Um, you know, for, for example, you know, we all know when we hire, we hire a new employee, we may or may not do vetting, that's, you know, immaterial in one sense, but we give them the privileges they need to do their job. And then, you know, as a good employee, they decide to move to another area of the business. And do we ever take away the old permissions? <laughs> Rarely. So they, they just accumulate permissions for years. You know, our, probably our asset, our asset accuracy, you know, if your asset accuracy is above 60%, you're probably doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you know, do you understand what ports and protocols are in use across your network? Do you understand what rules are on your firewalls? Are your policies in any way written around the right people? Are they fit for purpose with what the business is trying to do? And the biggest thing we can do is actually use the digital transformation, however that be, is whether it's moving to the cloud, whether it's new devices, whether it's that user-centric design, to actually try and iron over or, or remove some of the, the debt that we carry today in our basics. You know, if we're moving to the cloud, well, can we start to do asset management a bit better, at least for our cloud resources? Right. You know, and, and at least start to build a better picture. Can we can we start to bear back a, a little bit in terms of what protocols and connectivity we need in place, or at least a better understanding of what's there, and understand which which pinch points or monitoring points we can put in place, and understand what the business value of the things we're delivering are in terms of the transformation, and therefore, from a security point of view, know where it's probably best for us, which baskets to put our eggs in for a starter for ten, so we actually understand a bit more of the business value. 
Yeah. And um, so, and it, yeah. And if we go back to your idea of process, obviously this kind of, um, inventory or even improvement takes coordination across teams. So are there, how does this affect kind of the role of C-level cooperation? You know, is this the, the CMO and then the chief people officer are talking about the channels that they adopt or things that they want to allow, but obviously they need to involve the CISO or the CIO, depending on what part of the, the estate or the infrastructure it touches. How's, how's that all play out at the, at about the board level? Um, for me, certainly from a security point of view, it's it's uh, it, it's all you know. Certainly, at the top level, it's all about relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should it should be lower down as well. Similar to you know, when you talk about DevOps, it's about the Dev team and the Ops team really collaborating and working together and getting to know each other and understanding how they can be mutually effective. Um, security should be the same, except it goes wider than Dev and Ops teams into into the wider business itself. You know, people like the marketing, uh, whoever CMO should be one of your best friends to understand what are the big drives, where are we going to. Are we using a new mail agent? Well, let's get DMARC on it to ensure that the deliverability is good, the reputation's good, and no one's trying to spoof us at the same time. Yep. Um, if it's HR, well, how can we make sure we get the right things in there in terms of, of maybe vetting our people or understanding, getting the movers process really slick and understand kind of, well, when it comes to permissions, how can we give them the right things? And also, how can we put the right training in place? And what are the right touch points for all our new employees and then our, our existing employees and feeding through? Um, and the CIO, you know, my, my best friend and my best enemy, so, <laughs> um, she or he, I need to work with them that, you know, I need to understand that the transformation, the business driver will always win. And my job is to try and influence it and nudge it to do it in ideally the least risky way. Um, and the only way I can do that is by collaborating with other people and other areas um, and, and, and to pick my battles as well. Yeah. Um, and and if, you, yeah, I think you had also mentioned that communicating the business value, right? And we've heard some people say that CISOs have it tough because they have in this grand era of breaches, a pretty big responsibility. And yet typically the CISO doesn't touch the revenue of the business or they can't make a clear enough articulation as to, you know, why security matters other than a, a contingency plan or a what if, or a, it's just yeah. easier to fall back on, on not letting people do things. Yeah, and and then there's a you know there's there's two kind of danger points in there. One of which is that you you go with the boy who cried wolf kind of thing, and you and you look at all the other breaches that happen to someone else. You know, for example, mm-hmm. you know if some if if someone else gets burgled, does that mean you get burgled? No, it just means they've been burgled. That's all <laughs> it means. You know, you don't know the drivers as to what that was. Was it an opportunist thing? Was it people looking for spoons, or were people looking to steal tellies or whatever, or steal cars or anything off it? It doesn't mean you're going to get burgled. Right. Um, and you can talk about the threat and the rise in, you know, super sophisticated cyber threats and, and talk about APT and generally get it wrong, but talk about nation states and, 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 and go on the fear route. And, you know, you kind of look outside the window and there's bluebirds tweeting and you're kind of saying, I, I can't really correlate the two things together. Um, or we're always trying to prove a negative. You know, we kind of say we've spent one million dollars on security this year and nothing happened. And, and and very hard to then to say, well, if we didn't spend a million pounds, would anything have happened either? Um, right. And I, and I think one of the biggest things we miss in there is that we don't really build proper or that I've seen very often proper risk management metrics. I've seen I've seen lots of theoretical risk stuff, you know, that there are there is a, a theoretical risk of X, Y and Z. But I, I don't see a huge amount of, of genuine measurement of actual risk data mm-hmm. to show 
what the real potential likelihood and then to extrapolate some kind of impact to show a business value or a business risk perspective of all these different cyber inadverted comma things, whether it's threats or vulnerabilities, you know, the latest vulnerability of whatever kind that's now got a logo and it's got a name and or the latest um, the latest malware group or right. the latest nation state that's now got a name as well and, and the zero days and oh we need to concentrate on these technological things and rather than actually maybe we should start pinning them all together in one long line kind of the way risk does and actually coming out with something meaningful rather than just saying there's a new vulnerability everyone panic it just yeah, it, sort of like like a yeah. So if you were to develop internally like a spectrum of risk, then you would know, you know, severity, and you could prioritize your initiatives, and and you could actually probably align those risks also to business need, right? So for example, yeah. if you are worried about WhatsApp, but the sales team is you know under a lot of pressure to increase revenue by X percent, then you know at a at a business level that probably takes priority over just crossing your fingers and hoping you have no zero days yeah so maybe how could i how could i work with them to use whatsapp in ideally the most you know risk uh, risk reducing way possible recognize it's going to be used so just work with it how can i work with it rather than try and stop it because once something goes into business use it's very rare you'll be able to really pull the plug on it right but i've heard hiding your head in the sand is an effective security strategy (laughs) (laughs) i was I always found running away and hiding. (laughs) Just cowering. No, it doesn't exist. (laughs) Um, So we've talking about change, and I think this also goes into the next topic, which is uh, Human Firewall, which is a business you started. Um, Looks like it's a very effective way to force significant change in terms of security and process, that that big P word we've been talking about. Can Can you tell us a little bit about Human Firewall? And I also believe you also have a new venture in the works yeah well yeah i've got i've kind of got two which uh essentially so i'm one of those weird things is that i'm a defender turned vendor mm-hmm. so you know I, I i was a defender for the tax man so i i was about as evil as it gets and then i thought <laughs> oh, there's only there's only two ways i can know i can be i can become a consultant for the big four or i can become a vendor and i went for a vendor because it's just about as evil as it gets <laughs> uh, um uh, essentially, what what I've tried to do uh, with my partner is is develop solutions that alleviated problems I had in my day job. So they didn't don't solve them all mm-hmm. the way because that's impossible. Um, so one of which is uh, DMARC related. So um, this is around uh, preventing people from spoofing your domains and therefore hopefully reduce the phishing threat to the general populace and yourselves. And yep. at the same time, ideally improve your own. Uh, uh, deliverability and visibility and, and make your own use of email more effective. Um, so, I, you know, I work for the tax man and similar to the IRS and people like that. We had a huge phishing problem. Um, and, and, you know, through DMARC was able to put a little bit of a dent in it. You know, we, we reduced it by about half a billion a year, which sounds big, but it is just a little dent. You know, such is the volume. Right. Um, and, and, and that's all about really trying to help people uh a, understand that DMARC exists, B, recognize that it's a good thing to do, and C, help them move from a position of probably nothing into a decent SPF record, implement DKIM, uh, and get DMARC into reject mode so that only you can actually send email on behalf of your domain. Mm-hmm. Um, a- a- amazingly, um, the amount of security vendors that don't have DMARC in place is staggering, absolutely staggering. You know, that it was so easy to spoof um, some of the biggest security vendors out there 
which kind of says if they're not protecting their own domains, how do you expect them to protect you? But uh, that's a different topic. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, I know several cybersecurity folks who were uh, using FaceApp, and I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Having fun. I'm yeah. alone. <laughs> I look old enough, so I don't need FaceApp. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I think someone did say, you know, if you want to know what you're going to look like in 30 years, just look at your parents. <laughs> <laughs> yes, truth. <laughs> Um, the, the other one uh, is a thing called human firewall. So uh, I, I don't want to do like a product pitch type thing, but essentially I want to do meaningful and often touch points with the end user themselves. Mm-hmm. And I want to do very simple, very to the point, very personal based um, security training and awareness to build up a culture where you know, you're never going to get everyone. Hey, if if you get 10 people to improve, then you're doing a good thing. Um, but but to get people into a culture of being able to identify some of the common threats through email and make it very simple to the, for them to report it um, and reward them to report it. So, so you know, use, using things like gamification to actually mm-hmm. build a positive reward structure for those who do the right things uh, and, and building towards what the ultimate right thing to do is. Um, but then recognizing off that, if I suddenly get, you know, I, I've got a thousand employees and all of a sudden a uh, hundred of them are more aware and start reporting stuff. Yeah, uh, significant just, improvement. I, it's a significant improvement, but I've also just taken a big dump on my security team. Because <laughs> <laughs> they've now got a yes. hundred more, they've now got a hundred more things to investigate along with the myriad of, of false positives through the IDS alerts and all sorts. Um, so basically looked and kind of went, what's, what is the process that my analysts used to go through for an email investigation? Uh, simple things like, uh, I want a copy of the email. I want to interrogate the headers. I want to do a sender IP address. I want to understand about that. I want to understand reverse forward DNS lookups. I want to do reputation lists. I want to check the spam blacklist. I want to do SPF decom and DMARC just as indicators to give me a bit of an idea. I want to know kind of if there's any URLs in there, but where do they actually go to? If there's attachments, then I want to run that through something, whether it's virus total or AN sandbox technology or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I want to know who else has received that email because penny to a pound for the majority of threats, there's going to be multi-recipients. Yep. Um, yep. And what state is it in? So is it opened, unopened, wherever? Um, and be able to take immediate actions off the back of that. Um, and, and what we've done is essentially we... we, we with Human Firewall, we integrate at the mail level. So whether it's 365, G Suite, or Exchange, 13 upwards, we can go lower, but it's a bit more convoluted. Um, it's essentially integrate that. So once a user reports an email, um, we can basically take that report and gather all that information with regards to that email and present it to the analyst as, the, as part of the ticket. So I don't need an analyst to talk a user through forwarding an email as an right, attachment. Right. Or finding out how, you know, these are all the tasks that they're going to do. Um, so, like, yes, yeah, so let's automate I, them. I can use a machine to do these things for them, and then I can use the human being and the Mark 1 eyeball to make a decision. Right. Um, and the decision off the back of that is also integrated in there because it's at mail level again, is that you can then kind of quarantine, you can purge from all mailboxes, you can understand who's done what, you can take all the various indicators that we build out of that, so sender IP address, URLs, and all that good stuff. Um, and you can orchestrate that to your other controls if you can do orchestration. Obviously, uh, if you're thinking of orchestration, I highly recommend you get to know ITIL change management and get to know the IT people to make sure you've got the authority to do it. Um, and, and then it's all standard sticks format, so you can federate intelligence out to other partners. Um, but probably my favorite bit 
uh, as much as I love kind of the remediation piece because that's really important. Uh, you know, if you're if you're going to get users to be aware and start reporting, you need to alleviate the overhead on the analysts. Is the moment one user reports an email, um, every other instance of that email within the organization will have a big red banner appended into the body that says, this has been reported as suspicious, please treat with care. Yes, there you go. So we're using security banners, but when it matters, you know, one one of my biggest frustrations is when I uh, when I'm having a conversation over email with someone at another company, and when the email my email comes back, it says, you know, it's got that banner. This yep. email is from yep. his external source, pre treat with care, <laughs> and you just go, I'm not being funny, but why the hell are you doing it? That, and and this is another security thing is that one organisation does it, so like good sheep that we are, everyone else bloody does it, and you just say. So basically, every external email I get is going to have this banner. Yeah, the good and the bad ones. Yeah. Yes, until so, it becomes until it becomes white noise, yeah. and then so, it so, becomes useless. So, so, so one from a user perspective, how am I going to differentiate? Mm-hmm. B, if that's on every email, I'm just going to tune out. So go away and spend your money on something better. Yeah. You know, oh, security doing stuff for security, and it doesn't bloody work. It's so frustrating. So we've, tried, <laughs> we've tried not to do that and do it kind of, if I'm going to warn you, I'll warn you when it matters. Um, I'll, the only other bit I'll add, and, and it's not a product pitch in any way, is the gamification bit's also about understanding and scoring and building a confidence rating in each individual user. You know, again, if you're doing training, why do we train everyone as if they're the same person? Right, exactly. You know, if you go to school, you might have different sets, you know, different sets for maths. People who are absolutely awesome at maths and people who can basically do basic maths and not much else. So mm-hmm. you treat them differently. Um, I want to treat end users the same way. I want to treat their strengths and weaknesses differently. Um, well, and they also have the- different use cases, right? Like if you're on yeah. a sales team, it's almost all outbound email to yeah. external people versus someone in HR who's dealing mostly internally. Well, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and then what I want to do with that is if I've got a high confidence rating in a user, say we set a threshold of X number of points in gamification side, when that user reports an email, rather than put the banner in there, I'll quarantine it for everyone because I've got a high confidence yeah. rating. User knows what they're doing. And therefore, <laughs> Super a user. A bit more. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and the final piece, the last piece, is that the, there's always a feedback loop to the original reporting user because if we don't go back and tell them the results of their actions, why the hell should they do it again? Right. So, yes, I think that that is a that's a frequent mistake in the corporate setting, which is yeah. I I want to encourage everyone to be vigilant, and then well, one there's no praise for being vigilant. So I mean, just on a basic human like stimulus yeah. response uh, system, it fails. But also, you don't know. There's no if yes. If there's no feedback, then you know. Why do yeah. it? You know, you might get that generic email that just says, thank you for your email. We are reviewing you your... Go, oh, <laughs> no, go back and talk to them. If, if nothing else, it gives you a touch point with the user where you can, you can have a conversation. You can show a human side of security. You can help to educate them again. And you start to build relationships. Why would you not use this opportunity? Come on. Yes, it's sort of, yeah, that's like the judicious use of automation, right? So obviously automate the collection of data that is going to the analyst so the sock doesn't hate you. And then, yeah. but, but then go back to the old school manual human interaction when it comes to talking about the threat itself. So not, yeah, not like automate all the things just because it's yep. easier or cheaper. Um, yeah, absolutely. well, we're talking, we're at, we're, 
we're reaching near peak frustration levels with information security <laughs> as an industry. So let's skip to this question, which is if there was one perception or thing about information security that you could change, what would that be? Just the one? Yeah, let's just <laughs> let's, let's, let's just oh, we have to stick to geez, one. That's hard. Um oh. it's a hard choice between actually dealing in fact and evidence, you know, and, and this is a classic as well, where you'll see, especially InfoSec Twitter, where you'll see InfoSec Twitter um, uh, react to a single tweet or a single picture or a single uh, phraseology and make massive assumptions and treat it as fact without gathering any evidence, you know, or context around it. And and this happens the same in the workplace as well, that we jump, we, we don't use fact enough. But the one I'll say is, is um, for security to get out of its ivory tower, um, you know, to, to actually come and truly be part of the business and collaborate with the business and and feel uncomfortable, you know. So so go and talk to your users. Understand, do you read my policies? You know, no. And the answer is no. <laughs> it, 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 it's the best mirror you'll ever look in, you know, and, and that mirror will tell you that you're not doing a great job. Um, but if, if you don't understand how good you're doing, um, how can you ever make changes, improve? along the way and, and it's it's quite cathartic it's very difficult to do the first couple of times of putting people at ease and saying i want you to tell me i'm shit yes. because if you don't, <laughs> if you don't tell me i'm shit i'll just keep doing the same thing and really just pissing you off constantly or, you know, or so, yeah or you so, just ignore all my emails which is yeah, makes exactly. an organization very safe so let's let's work together you know i want you to give me that feedback you know i want you to give me that feedback i want you to tell me when i'm doing things wrong if you don't tell me, I'll never get them right, or it, there's a there's a very high likelihood I won't, and, and that's probably the one thing I'd change. Yeah, and I think you know, breaking down silos. If security is only worried about security on a day to day level, and they don't know the most basic things like how is the sales team incentivized, you won't even understand you know the psychological underpinning as to why people might be doing what they're doing. Right? Why aren't yeah. you using your MDM approved device? Well. Because I left it at work and I had to talk to this client at home because I'm incentivized to sell things to get my bonus. Oh, yeah. okay, right. So we should protect your BYOD also, <laughs> like you know, yeah. um, no, or, or, or give you, you know, give you appropriate training or talk to you about how you can make use of that because that's what you've got to do. And is it any less secure or more secure than what mm -hmm. you've got today? But you're going to use it anyway, so let's just deal with it as it is and try and help you use it in a way that I'm more comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's similar to a CISO we talked to who um, is the CISO for a big research university, which just has a very distributed attack surface and is impossible to control every professor and student and retail machine. So a lot of it was equipping those users on on how best to use that technology, but understanding that ultimately you weren't going to be able to you know, control every aspect, no. every hour. No. And then there's a certain amount that, you know, that makes us feel really nervous, you know, because it's not within our locus of control. But then actually, even if you remove kind of, you know, the personal devices or um, unsanctioned apps or anything like that, most of it's still not in our control anyway. You know, we don't we don't run asset management. We don't run the jo joiners process. We mm -hmm. don't do access management for general users. 
um, we don't generally run training. That's generally run out of HR and we kind of fit into that. You know, that, that we're not generally masters of destiny for a lot of the things that, that we need to help us do our jobs. Like, like, for example, you know, let's say there's a new vulnerability comes out tomorrow and it's patched. And again, you know, purist InfoSec says, you must patch this in the next 10 seconds. And I'd love to patch at the speed of InfoSec. Um, but for <laughs> it's a, start, a dream for world. A, yeah, for a start, you know, my, my asset inventory, my asset register, if I've got one, let's face it, how many people have got a CMDB? Um, my, my asset visibility is really poor. So how do I know if I'm affected by this, how I'm affected by this, how many I'm affected by and what their business value is, even before I kind of go, right, now what mechanisms do I need to go through to actually, say, get a patch and push it out? Um, and which teams do I need to engage to actually do that? Because, again, I'm security. I don't patch. Why am I going to patch Windows servers? That's probably the team that looks after the Windows servers. Right. You know, <laughs> well, and and so that, may, that, that may well involve suppliers or it involves a business service, you know, and, it, and it's a nine to five, Monday to Friday business service that they won't let you take down on a weekend. Right. You know, <laughs> And yeah. that's maybe where I can leverage some of the digital transformation and the ability to build that resiliency in and maybe spin up another instance while I take one down and patch it or whatever it happens to be or use native AMIs or whatever. I can make life easier for myself. But again, InfoSec, this purest view starts to – it doesn't recognize all the different areas that we are dependent on to help us do the things that purest InfoSec wants us to do. I wonder if this is uh... – a, a reason behind the average CISO's tenure being like 18 months. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, that's one of those odd ones. I, I, I do see kind of, you know, people in the strategic role, only in a strategic role for maybe one to two years, which kind of says, well, that's not long enough to devise a strategy, implement a strategy, and, and then and understand. See if it works. <laughs> and, and most importantly, did it bloody work? Because yeah. if I don't know if it worked, then potentially I'm just going to go to the next organization and make the same mistakes. You know, I, that, that tenure potentially should be longer. I mean, so obviously sometimes you don't get it. But, you know, if it's within your gift to actually understand, does my strategic thinking actually align and does it work in practice? I think it's massively valuable. Yeah. And so at the, the collaborative level, we, we just talked a little bit about like the, the folks in the trenches. Um, but what do you think it requires at the leadership level, that collaborative approach? Is that just the CISO educating other uh, C-level members about how they impact security? Is it just, you know, how do you, how do you get, what, what am I trying to say here? Is how do you break down the silos in the ivory tower? <laughs> no, how do you, um, yeah. How do you get out across the board and, 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 tell the CMO, like, this is a strategic priority from a security standpoint, but I also want to help, you know, your team use whatever tools it needs to, to do it. Because at this point, the CMO is managing a larger technology stack than, than most CIOs, which is a, yep. a crazy thing to think about. Yes, uh, bonkers as that is. Um, uh, first and foremost, talk. Talk mm -hmm. to people. You know, and not not just at a peer level, you know, that C-suite or whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, but also just to the human beings around you in the office space. Um, and also encourage your people to do the same. Just talk to people. And and that's that's difficult uh, in two ways. Normally, if you start to talk to someone and you say, I'm from security, they clench their buttocks, you know, because they think that... <laughs> They think something's gone wrong and you just want to go, no, no, I, I just want to say hello. Right. <laughs> and build a relationship. And, 
and when you have touch points with people, whether it's over meetings or whether it's over process, things like that, just use the opportunity to build a bit of a rapport, build an understanding. Mm-hmm. Go, go and find, you know, the, generally speaking, the CMO is not going to come to you and say, how can I send these emails securely? No, right. Go and, yes, talk, exactly. go and say, right, what is it? Go and understand and say, look, I know you might be really, really busy. So who's best within your teams to speak to? I want to understand what you do. So to make sure when I'm thinking of security, it's with you in mind and it's to the positive impact upon you to help you do things in a way that's less risk averse, but in no way hampers you. I want it to be transparent. I want everything I do to be transparent to you as an end user, to you as a department, to you as a CMO. I just want you to trust that it's there. Um, but if I don't understand how you work, what your peaks are, what your drivers are, same with the sales, what's your incentivization? Um, do you have peaks and troughs? You know, is there a certain time of the year that you'll just say, look, just leave us alone because this is insane. Um, whereas next week we're a bit quieter. You know, so, so you've, you've almost got to be that person that goes out there and, 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 breaks down the little barriers and goes and talks to people you know and and whether that's at the coffee machine or whether it's in a formal meeting whichever way go and make contact with people go and start to build relationships build a rapport start to build empathy with what they do on a daily basis and where they where they are in the business hierarchy in terms of what they do not necessarily their position infosec Um, as diplomatic corps it it should be it should yes absolutely i think we might have to change the curricula in, in several <laughs> universities uh you know um I mean, I mean there's one thing with that is is you know I, I think one of the best things i ever did in my life was not go to university um, fair point because because i went out there and and um i've learned much of the same stuff that i would have done over a university course and probably much more you know in practical hands-on but then again would i have got the job if i didn't go to university you know in other you know would i now that's sort of grabs but I, I dealt with human beings. I dealt with people. I dealt with departments. Mm-hmm. I dealt with technology. I dealt with the various ITIL processes and standards and security. So actually, I got that grounding in stuff that a university course wouldn't have taught me. It wouldn't have taught me that, you know, this is a network. Isn't it wonderful? As opposed to this is a real network. It looks like a bag of spanners. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 you know, our, our asset register is a car crash. There's literally bits everywhere. <laughs> right. right. And good luck. So, yeah. You know, yeah. So, so how do I how do I move away from theory and uh, the books and spoon feeding into the real world where my critical thinking and a bit of experience has really got to count? Yeah, precisely. All right, we're going to change gears as we we round the corner here. Yes, we always love to ask our podcast guests at the very end, knowing what you know, all the things we've talked about today as it relates to infosec. What keeps you up at night? Uh, what keeps me up on way uh, up at night? Uh, rumble strips on the motorway mostly. <laughs> <laughs> no, to be honest, not a great deal. Um, I, I think for two reasons. Um, one of which is the that I like to when I when I leave Infosec at the end of the day, whatever the point at the end of the day that is, um, I like to switch off. Uh, you know, I've got a family, I've got two kids. Um, I I have to have that time where it's a bit more. Uh, turn the brain off in one sense, turn mm-hmm. the infosec off and, and do something else. Otherwise, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to hit burnout. I've, I, I've done it once, you know, in, in my employment where it was just constantly infosec, constantly security. Um, and eventually, and it took a long time, it just drove me and ground me down. Uh, and I made a conscious decision shortly afterwards to leave the organization, but also to say, you know what, you've got to switch off. So yeah. I'll go on 
I'll go and watch rugby or I'll, I coach rugby for my lads or I'll go and do jujitsu and I'll, I'll just take myself to a different place. Um, but the other reason why stuff generally doesn't keep me awake at night is, is, you know, we work in an industry that's generally predicated by fear. You know, there's either fear within the organization that something bad's going to happen, the what if scenario, there's a new vulnerability, there's a new strain of malware, there's APT, there's all this stuff that's there to make me afraid. Um, and my view on life generally with stuff like that is there's a huge, massive amount of context that's completely missing from all of that. And if I don't understand the context, then why am I sitting here cacking my pants? You know, <laughs> I, I, relax, breathe, think of the context. Don't just jump on the latest fad or, you know, um, sport hack, you know. Oh, my God, there's hackable sex robots. Really? <laughs> How many you know, do we have in this company? You know, a part of... Apart from the guy that's doing the Unix stuff, you know, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a dig at Unix. Uh, no, but, I mean, you, know, you look at that, the business context, zero. Risk context, zero. So right. why am I scared? Right. Calm down. You know, we, we, we get too fanciful. We get too afraid. We love the sensation. We love the technology. We love the fear. We love the adversarial kind of viewpoint of it. Um, cause it's a lot more, you know, notionally a lot more exciting than the kind of, well, how many assets have I got today? Right. You know, or, or, well, or, yeah. So you know, I, the, the takeaway message here, InfoSec listeners, self-care, <laughs> right? Just like, a, healthy a healthy approach, compartmentalize. I, I, I think, yeah, self-care, compartmentalize and deal in reality. You know, don't, don't deal in hyperbole. Don't deal in fear and, and don't be seduced by that. You know, take take a breath, think about it in a business and a risk context, and generally speaking, you'll sleep quite well at night. All right. Well, the converse of that question is, um, given what you know, what is giving you the most hope? The most hope? Uh, I'd probably say uh, as much as it, at times it drives me wild, I think there's a lot more of a infosec uh now there's a still a lot of bravado there's still a lot of kind of neediness and and you know that whole kind of i need to have likes i need to have followers mm -hmm. i need whatever to be i need to be seen as a thought leader and an expert um but i i do see a lot more sharing a lot more collaboration and a lot more caring and relationships i, I think some of the social media stuff has allowed us to build relationships that go far more geographically dispersed than it ever would have done even five years ago. Yeah. I mean, um, in full transparency, you know, I, I found yeah. you through Rowena who is, is hilarious. So now I follow yeah. two hilarious Brits on, on yeah. InfoSec Twitter. <laughs> but it's one of those things, you know, that, that, that helps us build and share with each other. And don't get me wrong, you know, with that, there's good and bad in there, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's people there that, but the, the joys of things like that is you don't need to listen to people. If you choose not to listen, don't listen. You know, there's a hell of a lot of mediocre out there. There's a hell of a lot of self-professed experts. But there's a lot of people just generally talking, conversing, sharing, building relationships, building friendships, building peer groups, building support groups. Um, and that probably gives me the best hope. And, and slowly but surely, I think, starting to become more aware that there is a world outside of security that we need to be kind of aware of. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you again, Ed, for taking the time. It's been very entertaining and uh, very informative too. No, thank you for having me. It's been great fun.
All right. Brilliant. Well, we will let you know when this airs. Um, but in the meantime, I'm sure we'll uh, entertain and, and trade barbs or just share in barbs about other people <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Take it easy, Ed. Thank you. Nice one. Cheers. Bye. Ed Tucker is a hilarious and insightful individual. Yes, he brings lots of joy to the InfoSec community. Yes, I am 100% certain that that is the first time and most likely the only time that we will hear the phrase cack my pants on this podcast. (laughs) But if we hear it again, we'll let you know. (laughs) That's right. Um, All right. So the news that we are following uh, this week, um, we are still thinking about the Capital One breach. Uh, usually breach news is sort of come and go when it's become kind of a big thing for it to appear and disappear quite quickly. Um, I don't know why we're thinking about this one so much. Maybe it's because Capital One's sort of in our backyard in McLean, Virginia, uh, or we know a lot of people who have accounts. Um, but I also think it's really because we are thinking about what are the lessons learned. Certainly there's something to do with network configuration and monitoring logs, Um, But also, you know, I think our CEO brought up the good point that it is about understanding the unknown, right? Right. So if you're not actively looking for your information that's out there and it's on the web and nobody tells you, it could just be there forever. People taking advantage of it. Yes. And thinking about social and digital channels as uh, strategic threat hunting surface and and thinking about security as it relates to proactive intelligence rather than just inside the network. Um, But moving on, we also have uh, our attention on some new legislation. It seems like there's sort of new tech legislation by the day, but Senator Josh Hawley, the Republican from Missouri, has sponsored what is called the SMART Act, which stands for Social Media Addiction Reduction Technology Act, a bill that is aimed at curbing uh, what Holly refers to as social media addiction. It, it goes after uh, certain technological features such as infinite scroll, autoplay, and also proposes limiting a user's time on a platform to 30 minutes a day. The user could change that, um, but they but that new limit would reset every month. So basically you have to essentially opt in and say, yes, I w- I'm choosing to spend more than 30 minutes a day on a Twitter or a Facebook. Interesting. George, how much time do you think you spend on social media a day? Um, I do not spend that much time on Twitter as anyone would know from my very poor following, mostly because I'm <laughs> too busy with other things. Um, but it should also be noted that Holly is the co-sponsor of the bill with our own senator, uh, Mark Warner, um, which we earlier talked about, which is seeking to add more transparency to how users are informed that their data is both being collected and monetized and the value that the company places on that data. So we see um, more and more legislation by the day. It should be noted that Holly is the Senate's youngest member at 39. So interesting that it's it's coming from him rather than maybe you might expect an older generation. But we will continue to watch uh, what is happening in another part of our backyard, which is on Capitol Hill. Until then, uh, thanks as ever to Matias Cefaletti for our theme music, to Abby Bruce for our sound design. This is George Comedy. And Ashley Stone. Signing off for the Zero Hour. Stay safe, y'all. 